Good morning, Redeemer Community Church. If you could, go ahead and make your way back to your seats, grab your coffee, and get settled in for us moving into a time of worship through the Word of God. Obviously, you know where I stand tonight. I'm showing my cards. Sorry, my Ravens fan friends over there, you know, go Chiefs. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. I just had to, you know. When else are you going to get the opportunity to preach on Sunday when your favorite team is playing in the Super Bowl? I debated largely whether to wear it or not, my Chiefs polo, but we had my three-year-old birthday party last night, and all my friends were like, you have to do it. I'm like, okay, well, if you're going to make me, why not? Um, but I can't wait. Can't wait for the party tonight. Super Bowl, go Chiefs. Can't wait to watch Taylor Swift propose to Travis Kelsey after the game. It's going to happen. Just wait. It's going to be like a movie, slow motion. Um, Obviously, today's a fun day for me. Uh, To be honest, 2023 uh, for me and my family was was filled with some high highs, but also some really low lows. Uh, It wasn't necessarily the easiest year for us. Uh, From the little things to the big things, it just felt like everything was kind of unraveling. Things were breaking. The little things, that we had a dishwasher go out, we had a washing machine go out, you're like, first word problems, right? Like, come on, Bryce. Um, but it just seemed like thing after thing after thing, and the little side, everything was just breaking and falling apart. Um, and then we had some major things as well. You know, our, our, our youngest, Tate, was born two months early, ended up being in the NICU for three weeks, and it was just a wild time. You know, financially, we weren't in the best situation, and so we just felt like we were just drudging and going through life. I mean, it was to the point where I'm looking at God and I'm being like, I I just don't understand what you're doing here. Like, it just doesn't really seem fair. You know, you kind of get into this self-entitled mindset of like, I'm doing ministry. Like, this is my job. This is my life. I'm, I'm working day in and day out to disciple young people to love Jesus. And, and I feel like, Lord, you've promised to take care of me. You've promised uh, uh, to bless me and give me what I need. And, and I'm giving my life to you, but it just doesn't feel like that's matching up, right? And it just doesn't seem fair, I found myself saying to God so many times. Found me and my wife having these conversations, and, and she was always trying to encourage me and build me up and pull me out of, of that negative mindset. But I did feel like I spent a lot of 2023 in this mindset of just negativity, like, Lord, where are you? Life is hard right now, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm walking the narrow path, but it just feels heavy. And for some of you in this room, you might have had a 2023 similar to me. Or maybe you're in that right now. Life is just heavy for you. You just feel like Rocky, right? And you're just getting punched and you're just trying to stay up in the ring. Maybe a loved one that, uh, that has passed away. Maybe you or, or someone you know has been diagnosed with cancer or, or, or a disease and is hurting his pain. Maybe you personally are struggling with financially or maybe it is the little things that are just accumulating in your life and you're just exhausted and you're like, Lord, like, when is it going to end? Like, I understand the Christian walk might have some trials, but it just feels like they keep coming. And we find ourselves in these situations in life. You know, the Christian walk is not one that's promised to be us just skipping through a field of flowers, drinking, drinking chocolate or something, right? And like, all is great. It's like we cognitively know that the Christian walk is going to have trials. 
It's going to have hardships. It's going to have pain. But we're in the midst of those things. It's really hard to see how the Lord is working. Easier to see when we come on the other side of it and we look back and we're like, oh my goodness, like I see how the Lord navigated this and that and that and how he used that for his glory and his purpose. But we're in the, when we're in the midst of hardship and trial and pain that comes through life, it's just difficult, isn't it? It's so much easier to understand and realize that we were made to live in a perfect world, but because of sin and the fall, we, we can't have it. And we are made to live in perfect relationships, but because of sin and the fall, we, we can't have it. And so we're left walking in a world that is broken and fallen, seeking the Lord and trying to continue to stand. And if you're in this room and, again, you're going through a hardship like this, my hope and prayer for you is that as we walk through this letter in Revelation, this is an encouragement to you. This is something for you in the midst of your hardship right now that you can find rest in, that it maybe can help you take the next step forward. And if you're in this room, you're like, you know, Bryce, life's pretty good right now. You know, I can't lie. Like, you know, everything's going how I expected, and, and I feel good. My relationship with the Lord is great, and so on and so forth. Know that trial will probably <laughs> and eventually come in your life. And my prayer and hope for you today is that this letter that Jesus is going to write to a church will be in the back of your mind in the depths of your heart, so that when, not if, trial and hardship comes, you're able to be encouraged and take that next step. So if you would with me, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. Last week, Jeff walked through and kind of summarized Revelation 1 through 12, and he comes back next week. He's going to continue on in our study in Revelation, jumping back into Revelation chapter 13. But when he asked me to preach, I'm like, hey, what do you want me to preach on? He said, you know, we didn't really get a lot of time to dive into this specific letter in Revelation chapter 3. And so he wanted us today to dive into the Word of God and kind of flesh out what is Jesus saying to this church. But before we dive into the Word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. We are unworthy even to be standing here together as the body of Christ to worship you. But yet you give us the opportunity to do this because of your son. Lord, you've united us to you. And because of that, we can stand boldly in worship. I pray that as we read your word, as we handle your word, Lord, may you guide us, may you lead us. Father, may it pierce our very souls. May it be an encouragement to us, a rebuke if we need it. For Lord, your word is good. Lift this time up to you. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's dive in. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And so I'm going to stop there because there's a lot of cultural context that we got to understand before we even continue to carry on in this letter. You see, Philadelphia, this city, was named after a guy named Atollus II. He lives in a culture that is all about betrayal. Like, this is just like what they do. Friends betraying friends, kings betraying kings, formal alliances, informal alliances, they're all breaking down. It's a power, just charge culture, and it's all about getting ahead. Even family members betraying family members. This is what this culture is going to be defined as. 
I'll do whatever I have to do to get ahead. So Atalus II is a diplomat of a kingdom that his brother is actually the king of. The kingdom and the people eventually kind of get tired of his brother. He's not the best leader, taxing them maybe more than they needed to be. He's living a lavish lifestyle and they're living in poverty. And so they're frustrated and maybe rightfully so. So they go to Atalus, the diplomat. You know, the one that has less power than his brother, the one that is seen as maybe weaker than his brother. And they go and they say, hey, would you please help us in overthrowing your brother? Would you please help us in betraying him? And if you help us, we will make you king. Sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Like, oh, okay, sure, why not? I get to be king? Tallus II doesn't bite. You see, Atalus II looks at the people who are trying to get him to betray his brother, and he says, I will not do this, for I love my brother. Eventually, he becomes renamed because of this significant moment in his life as Atalus Philadelphus, the one who loved his brother. So counterculture. I mean, it was so counterculture for him to do this that they literally rename him Atalus Philadelphus, coming from the Greek word phileo, the love of a brother, the love of a companion. So fast forward a little bit in history, and Hellenism is spreading rampant. Hellenism's the spread of Greek culture and everything that goes with it. And they were so passionate about spreading Hellenism that they literally would send missionaries of, of Hellenism to other nations and plant a city and say, okay, it is your job to missionize to send this message of Greek culture and how great it is and how glorious it is to the world around you. Sound familiar? So they sent this group of people to a city in Asia Minor, and they say, your job is to spread Hellenism, Greek culture, all throughout Asia Minor. This is your sole priority. And in fact, we want you to do this so bad. You have an open door. Anything you need, you need military, you need money, you need this, you need that, we'll give it to you. Open palm, open door policy, anything you need to spread our culture to the world, it is yours. And so they build this city and they actually name it after Atalus Philadelphus, which is why this letter is written to Philadelphia, the love of his brother. You see, they so thought that Atalus Philadelphus embodied what Greek culture was, they literally name a city after him. Tallus Philadelphus ends up actually becoming a king of this city at some point. He wasn't the first one, ironically. But at some point in history, he does become a king for a brief moment of this city, whose goal is to spread Hellenism. So let's keep thinking through what could stop them if they have an open-door policy. Like, if they're like, hey, we'll give you anything. And you can do anything, and we'll spread Greek culture. The only thing that could probably stop them would be natural causes, right? And in fact, they built this city, and the one thing they might not have thought about is they built it next to a volcano. Not far off from the city was an active volcano, in fact. And this volcano, for the first several years of Philadelphia being present, just had short tremors, you know, things that might, whatever, cause a crack in a sidewalk, you know, pots fall off a shelf, you know, things that they could rebuild, nothing significant. And then in AD 17, this volcano erupts. It explodes and it wipes out the city of Philadelphia, takes it out, it's rubble. The people so loved this location in this city and what it was about, which is rare that they would then go in and they rebuild this city. 
And they rebuild it with these marble and forced columns. It's important for you to note, just kind of put that in the back of your head. They built this city to withstand not only the tremors of the volcano, but also if it erupted, that hopefully this city would be able to have more longevity than it did initially. The people, though, after they build this city and they rebuild it and it's major and it's awesome and it can withstand this volcano, had PTSD. You know, they're afraid that if they live in this city that the volcano is going to explode again and here we are and we're in trouble and we've lost loved ones. And so they refused to live in the city. They left the city and they made tents outside the city and they were living in these tent colonies, only going into the city to work or for dinner or whatever, go and worship, but then I'm going to leave. And so they didn't actually reside in the city of Philadelphia because they were fearful of this volcano. This is the context in which Jesus himself is writing to the believers, the church in Philadelphia. Here is where we are in this chapter. So let's see what he's going to say to these people. The words of the Holy One, the true one. You know, he starts right off and he says, you can trust me. This is me, Jesus writing, Jesus talking. It's like, we should be cued in here. This is the Holy One who can do no wrong. He is righteous and good and perfect. He is set apart before anyone else. And he's the true one. Truth flows from the person of Jesus Christ because he himself is truth. He claims to be it. I am the way, the truth. Not one of the truths, not kind of the truths. He is alone the standard of truth. And he says, this letter that I'm about to write to you, you can trust me because of that. Who has the key of David? Who opens and no one will shut? Who shuts and no one will open? You see, this is a direct reference back to Isaiah 22, 22, which says this. Listen to this. And you see John use Isaiah so often in the book of Revelation. It says this. And I will place on the shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. You see, Jesus is telling Philadelphia, sure, the culture around you may have an open door to spread Hellenism, Greek culture, and everything that it was about, but I alone have the key to the kingdom of God. I alone, as the person of Jesus Christ, have the ability to open the door to the kingdom of God for those to come in and to close the door of the kingdom of God as well. We only come to know God the Father through our connection to the Son, Jesus Christ, by the seal of the Holy Spirit, right? He alone holds the key. He continues in verse 8, I know your works. You know, this Greek word knowing here, this is, is a depth that is spousal. This intimate knowledge, he says, I know your works of this church. I know the depths of your heart. It's not like I just kind of know you. I've been watching from afar. You know, I'm a deistic God who's just kind of been taking notes from my throne. He's like, I know what is happening in your lives. I know what is happening in your church. I know what is happening in your city, and I know it intimately. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Right? A total contrast to Hellenism. You think, you think the Greeks have set before you an open door. I'm telling you, I, as the one who holds the key to the kingdom of God, has set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. You know, this phrase doesn't mean that they have little power spiritually. 
This is not what Jesus is saying when he talks to the church of Philadelphia. In fact, this is one of the very few letters he writes to the churches that has no rebuke in it. You won't see at any point in time in this letter to this church where Jesus says, this I have against you, or this you're not doing well or right, or I really need you to do this better. So we can't refer to them, oh, they have little power spiritually. That's not what they're saying. Little power maybe numerically in the governing system of the culture that is defined by this church in Philadelphia. Whatever it is, this church doesn't feel like they have a lot of power to maybe make significant impact in the people around them, even though Christ has said that the door is open and I'm opening it for you. But then he says this, even though you have little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This Greek phrase here actually denotes a specific time. That there was a moment in the church of Philadelphia's life where the people were confronted with, do I go this path and deny the Lord, deny his word, or do I stay on the straight and narrow and keep following after him? And what Jesus is saying here to Philadelphia is, although you had little power, although you might have felt temptation and persecution to go down this path, I have this for you, that you kept my word that the culture around you is spiraling and pointing you to to fall away from me, to deny that my word is holy and true as he alone is holy and true, to deny that he himself as the Messiah Jesus has the keys to open and close every door, you have remained faithful to me and my word. There was a moment where they were confronted, do this and have this, do this and have this, and they chose Jesus They chose his word. How many times we are confronted on a daily basis, weekly basis. Do I follow after this here, this sin? Do I dive into this temptation? Or do I continue to stay on the straight and narrow and follow after Christ? According to the letter Jesus is writing to them, Philadelphia has stayed faithful in the moment where they had a crossroads. What was that crossroads? What was this moment You know, what what was Philadelphia confronted with? Well, he says in verse 9, read this. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Whew, that's some bold language. Who is he calling the synagogue of Satan? You know, you think, like, honestly, most of us in this room, if we are confronted with, like, hey, do you want to worship Satan or Jesus? Like, if, we're conf- if that's the language that is used before us, if you're a believer in this room, you're like, oh, that's pretty much a no-brainer. Like, okay, like, I'm not, I don't really want to follow after Satan. I think I'm good, right? It's pretty bold language. Who is he saying is a part of the synagogue of Satan? The people group might surprise you here. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not but lie. Now, this isn't a race thing. This is not what we're talking about here racially. We're talking about religion. The Jewish religion, the Jewish sect, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that they were still waiting for a Messiah to come. And so apparently this crossroads that happens in Philadelphia between the church and the Jewish people who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah was that. Do I go with Really, especially if you're an early Jew, do I go with the the people that I know, this religion that I probably was brought up in, 
Or do I stay faithful to Christ, the true Messiah? Do I fall into the trap that I discount the word of God and say, yeah, you guys are right. There probably must be another one coming that isn't Jesus. He hasn't already come and fall into that trap. Or do I remain faithful to the word of Jesus, knowing that he is holy and true, that he is the one who holds the key, that he is the one who directs me to what is good and stay on that path. And apparently they chose Jesus. Obviously, it's going to create tension. But he calls the ones who thought Jesus was not the Messiah, that they were a part of the synagogue of Satan. That although they walked in the religiosity of what it meant to be Jewish, they were lying about it because they didn't actually follow what it meant to be truly the people of God. To follow after Jesus, they missed the point of their walk. They got caught up in religious practices and the law and they missed grace and truth. They got caught up in doing and doing and doing to earn the favor of God that they missed Jesus standing before them saying, I am him. I have come to save the lost. So far that he calls them as part of the synagogue of Satan, something so other than the kingdom. And then he says, what will become of those who don't follow after the Messiah? Another bold statement that he's going to take from Isaiah. He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you. You know, he goes back all the way. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 23, it says this. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Later, Isaiah 60, verse 14 says this, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You know, this reference to one day, and we know how the story ends, Christ wins. Christ dies on the cross and he conquers Satan. He rises again and lives a new life and and creates us a way to, to be united to him in that new life. Christ wins and we are a part of that victory as we are united to him. You know, he's writing to Philadelphia and saying, take heart. I get it, it's difficult You know, you're faced with these crossroads and and you have people telling you that that you're a heretic because you don't believe in Jesus or because you believe in Jesus as the Messiah. I get that it's probably causing strife culturally. I get that the Greeks are bound to spread their culture, which is not necessarily honoring to God and that it's hard to remain faithful, but you guys are doing it. And because you guys are doing it, one day that victory will reach its fruition He continues on to give this encouragement. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Okay, if I'm going to endure something, it's difficult. It's hard. We don't use this language of endurance if something is easy. And so he tells this church of Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you have carried on, Although life may be hard around you, you continue to take the next step. Because of that, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
Now, I'm not going to get too much into the depths of this as there's all kinds of you know, different open-handed issues about when this trial will come and all of that. That's not where I want to sit in this passage. There's more important things, I think, in this moment to think about as Jesus is writing to Philadelphia. So let's just simply say what the text says. Apparently, those in the world, this is universal language, he's going to judge the whole world. We can assume then that he's going to keep from the hour of trial, those who are faithful in Christ. What that looks like, when that's going to happen, I do not know. I'm not going to act like I stand up here and know the definite knowledge of this. But we know that because they patiently endured, because the trials and temptations around them were pressing in and they continue to take the next step, they're going to be kept from the hour of trial, the judgment of God. He's a just God. He's a God that is going to judge the world because of our sin. And if you're found in Jesus Christ, you will be judged according to the work of Jesus Christ in you. But if you are not found in Jesus Christ, you will be judged according to your works and your works alone. And we all can stand and realize that that's not going to be a great end result for us. That end is hell and death and destruction versus being found in the person of Christ, being life and heaven and eternity with him. He says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast, believers. Again, you're not promised a life on Christianity where you're just going to skip through fields of flowers all the time. There is going to be difficulty. It's not a probability. It's a truth because we live in a fallen world, but he looks at the church of Philadelphia and he says, hold fast. Carry on, continue to take the next step in your journey with Jesus in whatever this life may bring you. And then listen to this. This is where the context of Philadelphia is really going to kick in here in verse 12. The one who conquers, the one who holds fast, the one who patiently endures, the one who carries on and follows after Christ when confronted with the crossroads of denying Jesus or going after him. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Listen to what Jesus is telling the church of Philadelphia here in this context of this city. These people have watched the city be completely destroyed and rebuilt. They have watched a volcano erupt and wipe out what they know. And then they have watched as it's been rebuilt with these beautiful, massive, marble-enforced pillars. These things that are with able to withstand the tremors and the eruption of the volcano. And then Christ looks at the church of Philadelphia and he says, I am going to set you up as a temple or a pillar in the temple of my God. I am going to set you up, Christ alone. And you better believe that what Christ sets up, what Christ creates, what Christ builds is able to withstand a tremor or an eruption of a volcano. The trials, the temptations, the hardships of our life. Christ sets you up as a pillar in his temple. And not only that, but something that I didn't mention earlier because I was kind of saving it for this moment. 
was that this church of Philadelphia, this culture of Philadelphia, not just the church, if you made a significant impact on this city, most, much like most Hellenistic cities, they would go and they would write your name on the pillar. Maybe you were an athlete. Maybe you were a scholar. Maybe you were a great politician. They would go and they would etch your name upon the pillar so that you may be remembered for forever, as long as that city may stand. And here Christ is looking at this church of Philadelphia and he says, you see those marble pillars over there? That's great. That's fine. They may be, with, with, may be with, able to withstand the tremors and the eruption of the volcano. Eventually they're going to fall. I'm going to set you up as a pillar in the temple of my God and then I'm going to write my name upon you. And this is where this sermon switches from a motivational speech to say, keep going. You know, life's going to be hard. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be temptation. So just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you better keep pressing on. Patiently endure. Hold fast. All these language that Jesus has used so far, if we just stopped there, we would be exhausted. Because here's the reality. We all know sitting in these seats, we can't do it. Y'all, life's too hard. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I cannot do it, which is why it's so important, don't miss this, that you're not the one who does it. It's already been done. You, he doesn't tell you, go and set your own pillar up. He sets you up as a pillar in his temple. And then he doesn't say, go write your own name on the pillar. He says, I've written my name on you. And because of that and that alone, what we couldn't do, Christ has already done. And because of his work and the hope that is to come, I can now patiently endure. I can now withstand the volcano that just seems like it's right outside my door. And at times in life, it's a patient one. And it just has little tremors. The dishwasher breaks, whatever. The fridge breaks down. And other times in life, it feels like it's erupting. And I don't know where to go or where to turn, but onto my knees and say, praise be to God that his work is accomplished on the cross. And that one day, this volcano won't even be anymore. But right now, I can hope in the truth and the reality that he has set me up in his temple and nothing can tear it down. That he has written his name upon my heart, and it cannot be etched out. And that one day I will stand before the Father, and the Father will look, and he will see the name of Christ upon me, and not my own mess. That is where he stands. That is why he ends with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear and understand what I am promising those who remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And I can't help but be reminded of Romans 8.18 that says this. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We await the day for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. This is where we stand. Temples are pillars in the temple of God with Christ's name written on our hearts. And because of this, we can withstand the sufferings, the temptations, the trials 
of this life because he has set us up and he is unchanging and completely in control. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, if we were left to set up our own pillars to try to keep our little cities alive, Lord, they would crumble. Father, they'd crumble from the tiniest trimmer. And they do often. Lord, we confessed how often we, we do set up our own temple. We do set up our own pillars. We do retreat from your city to our little tents because we're concerned about the trials of life. Lord, forgive us for that. We acknowledge you are in complete control. Lord, that you have done the work that we could not do and that you have set us up. Lord, you've written the name of your son upon our hearts. And because of that, we can stand firm. In Jesus' name, amen.